Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Our knowledge may give us the ability to understand a situation and know how to respond. However, it's how we use our knowledge in the treatment of others that really makes a difference. You're listening to Knowledge and Love by Rev. Peter Yonker. As promised, our Bible reading tonight is from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 8, I'll read verses 1 through 13, which is actually the whole chapter. So 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13. Now, says Paul, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things have come and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat the sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God, and we're no worse if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. So be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. So meat sacrifice to idols. Um, Not exactly a pressing concern in uh, 2021 Grand Rapids, Michigan. And and so maybe not a subject that particularly interests you out of the gate. But it was a big subject in Corinth. And if we study what Paul is saying here, I really do think it will teach us something and have something to say to us in our current context. Meat sacrifice to idols was a a big deal in Corinth. And it was a big deal uh, for a couple reasons in that church. It came into the life, it intersected with the life of the people in a couple of ways. First, if you went down to the grocery store, you went down to the market and you bought meat, some of that meat could have been sacrificed to idols or could have been part of the the cult, the the worship of the the pagan temples. And some Christians were wondering, is that okay if I I buy meat off the shelf that's been sacrificed to idols? Am I Am I singing against God? And, and people had different opinions against that. And there was, so there was some level of controversy about that meat bought at the store. There was a whole other level of controversy about the meat that you would eat that had been sacrificed to idols when you took part in pagan festivals. 
In cities like Corinth, big cities around Greece and in the Roman Empire, there would be pagan festivals during the year. And these would be big civic events. Everybody would come together and they would have a good old time. It was really a July 4th kind of feeling, right? All the neighbors getting together only, instead of July 4th, it was pagan stuff, okay? But it was something that all the Christians would have participated in before they got there. It was something they would have all enjoyed and all loved and all their kids would have loved it. Now, these pagan festivals would have started off with probably an invocation from a pagan priest and with some sort of sacrifice of incense. But once that was done, off they went, and it was just like a big picnic and a lot of fun. So once these people became Christians, the question became, am I still allowed to go to those festivals? My kids want to go. All my neighbors are there. It's a fun time. Can I still participate? And some Christians said, yes, of course we can still go. And other Christians said very forcefully, no, that's terrible. That's idol worship. We shouldn't do that. Paul weighs into this controversy. And, and Paul weighs into it by responding to something he's clearly read. You'll notice, and I tried to indicate that by doing this with my fingers when I read the passage, that there are at least three separate quotes where Paul, as he is in, in chapter 8, is, is quoting back to the Corinthians something he's received from them, some sort of letter, some sort of memo, some sort of tract that is weighing in on this issue. You see that in verse 1 and verse 4. And if you pay close attention to the quotes, it's very clear that whoever wrote this letter or memo is of the opinion that, of course, strong Christians should be able to go to these pagan festivals. Of course, they should be able to go to these old idol feasts and their families and have a good time with their neighbors. And when you look at the quotations in our passage and the implication of them, and, and scholars agree on this, it's, it's pretty clear that the people who are making this position are theologically sophisticated people. They are making a theologically sophisticated argument. So these are smart people. So I imagine that they're the sort of the, the best educated members of the Corinthian church. You know, they graduated from Corinth State University. They did a little graduate work in Rome. And, uh, you know, they did a postdoc in, in Greece somewhere, maybe in Athens. And they, you know, they, 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 they've traveled around and they've read things and they can quote the Old Testament prophets, but they can also quote Homer and Virgil. And, and they're just intelligent people. Let's call them the knowledge party. And these thoughtful Christians have come up with a, a tight theological argument about why they should be allowed to go to these festivals. And you can see the argument when you look at their three quotes. We all possess knowledge, they say in verse 1. This, this, we all know this, right? This is clear. This is not something in dispute. What we're arguing here should be clear to everybody. This, our theology is, is very tight, they start with. And what is this theological knowledge they possess? Two things. An idol is nothing in this world. Idols aren't real. There's no God behind an idol. There's no power on it. They can't corrupt anything because it's just a piece of meat and there's no real God to corrupt the meat. Haven't you read the psalmist? The idols have eyes but cannot see and ears but cannot hear. So the idols can't corrupt the meat because they don't exist. And second part of the argument, there's only one true God, our God, and he's the one we worship. And so long as we keep our eyes on him, we can, we can go to these feasts and it'll, it, won't, it won't harm us. We'll be fine. 
And besides, and we don't hear this in chapter 8, but you can imagine them arguing this, didn't our Lord say that it is not what goes into a man that corrupts him, but what is in their heart? And so it's, what in, our, it's in our heart that matters. So yes, we should be able to go to these feasts, QED, it is demonstrated. This party apparently feels so strongly about their position that they're holding it up like a spiritual badge of honor that they go to these feasts. They're saying, this proves that we're strong Christians, that we really have strong faith and we really have strong knowledge who Jesus is. It's because we're such mature Christians that we are able to go to these feasts. And then maybe alongside with that, people speculate that they're looking at those who refuse to go to feasts and they're saying, what's the matter with you? Don't you have our knowledge? Haven't you advanced in your theology to the point where you can see what we're saying here? How come you don't come along with us? Don't you have faith in Jesus? In our passage, Paul sets himself against the knowledge party and their highly sophisticated theological arguments. He tells the knowledge party that despite how sophisticated their theological arguments are and how tight they are and how irrefutable they seem, he says, to quote verse 2, you think you know something, but you do not yet know as you ought to know. You don't understand what true knowledge really is. You haven't even started to know in the right way, says Paul. On its own, knowledge is a tool, right? Knowledge is a tool. It can be used for good or it can be used for evil. It's like a knife, right? A knife is a tool. You can use a knife for carving a Thanksgiving turkey, which is a good thing, or stabbing a neighbor with whom you're angry, which is a bad thing, clearly. Knowledge is the same way. And we've all experienced knowledge as positive or negative tool. I experienced it, for example, in seminary, sometimes in the same class. I remember going to one of my Old Testament classes, which I absolutely loved because it was the first class that opened up for me that the Old Testament could be written like literature. We read a book by Robert Alter called The Art of Biblical Narrative, and it showed how intricate and how detailed the Bible really was. And I was an English major, and I thought this was just great, and I learned so much. And I thought, wow, the Holy Spirit has depths here. This is going to be so fun to preach. That was knowledge in the best sense. Knowledge is a positive tool. But sometimes in the same class, amongst my classmates mostly, you'd have knowledge used in a different way. Knowledge used to make themselves look impressive to one another. Knowledge shared as a thinly veiled attempt to make yourself look a little bit clever than the person sitting next to you. Name dropping. Gratuitous use of long German words like Weltanschauung and Religion Geschichteschule. Don't, don't ask me what those mean. And the message was, right, and, and it, you know, that doesn't just happen in seminary. When you see that happening in a group, the message is, hey, everybody, look how smart I am. That's an example of what Paul's talking about when he says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge used like that is not positive, it is puffery, which is a real word. So Paul confronts the puffery of the know-it-all party and what's really interesting is that he confronts it not by refuting their arguments, but by agreeing with them. 
Paul essentially agrees with everything the know-it-all party says. He gives them all their points. There is no God but one. Yeah, you're right about that. Idols are nothing. Absolutely true. We know these things. You could probably eat meat offered to the idols and it's no big deal. That's, that's absolutely right. All of these things are true. But remember, says Paul, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You got all your facts right, but your facts are not pointed in the right direction. The problem with you guys is it not a lack of knowledge, it is a lack of love. Their knowledge is not in the service of love. For Paul, knowledge is always in service of Christian love. Love is the foundation, love is the end, and knowledge is its servant. And it seems for this group in particular, this knowledge, this, this, this sophisticated theological argument they're making is absolutely in service of themselves. Think about it. Why do they want to keep going to these pagan feasts? Why do they want to keep doing it? Because it's fun. Because they have a good time. Because their kids have a good time. Because it's pleasant. So they make this theological argument, but it's not in the service of love. It's not in the service of their neighbor. It is in the service of themselves and their own pleasure and what they want to do. They are, in the immortal words of the Beastie Boys, fighting for their right to party. So Paul says, you may be factually correct, but you are wrong because knowledge is a servant of love. Knowledge has its foundation on love. And it's a point he's been making throughout this letter. If you were here last week or if you had a chance to hear Christie's excellent sermon, remember it was on 1 Corinthians 2. And the issue there is what is true wisdom? And what was the conclusion of Paul? True wisdom is being in Christ. Belonging to Christ, being in the circle of his love, is being in the circle of the crucified Lord. That's where wisdom starts, in a relationship with him, not in some abstract knowledge. It's in a relationship with the crucified God. The same point is made in 1 Corinthians 13, in an even stronger way. If I can fathom all knowledge and if I can fathom all wisdom, but have not love, I am nothing. Knowledge passes away, says Paul. It's one of the things that doesn't last. Love never fails. Love remains. And Paul, of course, is absolutely in line with Jesus. When Jesus summarized what the, the ethics of the Christian life are all about, Jesus doesn't say, know the Lord your God and try to figure out all his rules and procedures and make sure you get all his theology right. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This doesn't mean that theology is bad or knowledge is bad. It just needs to be the servant of the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Perhaps we can develop a rule out of this. Maybe not a rule, but a question that we can ask ourselves when we face questions of what we should be allowed to do as Christians and what we ought not to do. What our rights and freedoms are as Christians and what our rights and, and how we should be allowed to use those rights and freedoms. And maybe the question needs to be this. As we assess our rights and decide what we have the right to do as Christians is the right that we demand in the service of love of others and love of God, 
or in the service of our own convenience or what we want. That's not going to make our decisions in these areas instantaneous or obvious. That's still an incredibly comp a complicated question to figure out the answer to. But it is the right question because it puts us in the orbit of the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's definitely a question that we could apply to some contemporary issues. Are there any areas of our life where there are issues or rights and freedoms are part of the discussion right now? As we deal with this pandemic, as we make policies for the church, we are always talking about what we know, what we think we know, and I put myself in that, right? We're all fighting about what we think we know and then the rights that flow out of that. As we wield our knowledge and assert our rights, it would be good if that could all be done under that question. Is my statement of knowledge and the assertion of my rights in the service of my love of neighbor? Or is it just me asserting what I want? And again, doesn't make the answer easy, but it's the right question. Because it puts us in the orbit of the love of Jesus Christ our Lord, which is where we belong. Amen. Lord, give us wisdom as you make decisions, whether that's in our life or for our church, and give us the wisdom that starts in a deep love for you. Give us a wisdom that is rooted in your sacrifice. Give us wisdom that is rooted in your love, and may it flow out from us and give life to the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.